The Lord be with you and also with you. God has gone up with a shout. The Lord with the sound of the trumpet. Alleluia. In virtual worship, our sanctuary empty, we gather this Ascension Sunday, May 24, 2020, where the dawn of the East meets the twilight of the West and the cool of the North touches the calm of the South and the transcendent power of God touches Earth in the humility and love of Christ. Here and now where the head of the Charles reaches out to the heart of the country and beyond, we gather in ordered worship. The liturgy, music, and sermon are offered in the praise of God for our virtual congregation through WBUR 90.9 FM and our listenership now and later at WBUR.org. We welcome your prayerful and material support, your written or emailed responses, your self-selection of forms of leadership, ministry, and service in our midst. And as the spirit moves, and when and as it is again permitted and safe to do so, your presence with us here in worship. Today's service of worship includes the greeting and sermon new this week, along with music and liturgy rebroadcast from 2017. Although our nave is empty, the music is full. It is our privilege and honor to welcome again to our pulpit here at Marsh Chapel, Scott Donahue Martins. Scott is an ordained Wesleyan minister and a PhD student in practical theology at Boston University School of Theology. He is a graduate of Houghton College, of Princeton Theological Seminary, and of Boston University. His research interests include narrative homiletics, hermeneutics, and the phenomenology of Paul Ricoeur. He and his wife recently welcomed their first child into the world. When he is not reading, Scott enjoys playing board games, biking, and camping. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Shouting glory to the 
pray. Almighty God, whose blessed Son, our Savior Jesus Christ, ascended far above all heavens, that he might fill all things, mercifully give us faith to perceive that, according to his promise, he abides with his church on earth, even to the end of the ages. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, in glory everlasting. Amen. Beloved, as is our custom, we begin our worship with a moment of silence, of confession. Today we meditate upon the institutions that have shaped us, each of which has a claim to the title Alma Mater, our families, our neighborhoods, our schools, our churches, our parties, our regions, our universities, all. We shape our institutions and then our institutions, they shape us. Let us remem remember with thanksgiving the substantial central importance of institutions in our lives as our choir leads us by the singing of the traditional Kyrie. Lord, have mercy upon us. Christ, have mercy upon us. Lord, have mercy upon us. Beloved, hear the good liberating news, not so much freedom of the will as freeing of the will. Christ has pardoned us and given us new life. If we confess our sins, God, who is faithful and just, will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thanks be a lesson from the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. In the first book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus did and taught from the beginning until the day when he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. While staying with them, he ordered them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait there for the promise of the Father. This, he said, is what you have heard from me. 
For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? He replied, It is not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. When he had said this, as they were watching, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going and they were gazing up toward heaven, Suddenly two men in white robes stood by them. They said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up toward heaven? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please join me in reading responsively verses from Psalm 47 with the Antiphon.
clap your hands, all you peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. For the Lord, the Most High, is awesome, a great king over all the earth. He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves. God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the, the sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God, sing praises. Sing praises to our King, sing praises. For God is the King of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. God is King over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. Please rise as you are able for the singing of the Gloria Patri and the reading of the Gospel. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Luke, chapter 24, verses 44 through 53. Glory to you, O Lord. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Messiah is to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and see, I am sending upon you what my Father promised. So stay here in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he was blessing them, he withdrew from them, and he was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they were continually in the temple blessing God. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ.
A reading from the book of Genesis, the fourth chapter, verses 3 through 10. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel for his part brought of the firstlings of his flock their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is lurking at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Cain said to his brother Abel, Let us go out to the field. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. If you look back, through the last few decades, you might notice that there has been an ongoing rise of dystopian and post-apocalyptic works. The Hunger Games, The Walking Dead, The Handmaid's Tale, Planet of the Apes, and dozens of other works have captured the attentions of readers and viewers. All of these works say something about the world in which we live. These works tend to reimagine society in light of suffering or offer a restructuring of life. The power of good dystopian literature is its connection to reality and the way it forces the reader to reconsider aspects of life. I cannot say for certain what the affinity between these works and the current zeitgeist is, but the correlation is significant. One popular dystopian novel has been especially on my mind lately, The Giver. The Giver is a 1993 novel by Lois Lowry, which was turned into a movie in 2014. The novel takes place in a society designed to function without pain, war, or fear. For all intents and purposes, the society seems to be a utopian one at first. However, throughout the book, the reader learns the costs of creating the society. In order to achieve the societal ideals, the community enforces strict uniformity toward utilitarian purposes. Individuals have to conform to societal norms. The ability to choose or make meaningful decisions in life is taken away from the individual and placed into the hands of a council. People are assigned families and jobs. The society is without many emotions like love. People cannot see the colors of the sky, ground, or any other colorful thing. Those who are not useful are euthanized. What appeared to be utopian is dystopian. One of the ways in which the society was able to enforce uniformity is that considerable amounts of the past have been intentionally forgotten. 
this provided a powerful formative force. Societies are shaped by what they remember and forget. So the ability to shape a society based on what it remembers and forgets is a profound power. We go through a similar formative process every day, even when we are not aware of it. We are shaped by the stories told, events remembered, and we are shaped by the untold stories and events forgotten. Well, there is no counsel with the ability to take away our memories, there is an ongoing struggle for whose memories and whose stories are true and matter. Turn with me again to the story of Cain and Abel, where two brothers made an offering to God. The planter Cain gave an offering from the fruit of the ground, and Abel, the herdsman, from his flock. Each made gifts to God from their work. For some reason, Abel's sacrifice pleased God, and Cain's did not. Theologians have argued for centuries about why Abel's sacrifice was more pleasing. The author of Hebrews indicated that faith had something to do with it. Hebrews 11.4 says, By faith Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offering. And by faith Abel still speaks even though he is dead. The faith aspect reminds us that inward dispositions impact outward actions. Augustine thought similarly when he argued that the reception of the offerings must have correlated with the intentions of the givers. In other words, Augustine believed that Abel's heart was in the right place and Cain's was not. Whatever the initial reason, it is clear that God recognized the consequences of favoring one brother's offering over the other's. So God warned Cain that he must not succumb to the anger in his heart. Cain was given a warning and a chance to overcome unjust anger against his brother. Cain was given the chance to recognize the blessings from God to others are not a cause of jealousy. But Cain lured his brother into a field and attacked him. One person killed another, brother killed brother. After Cain killed Abel, God questioned him about Abel's whereabouts. Because Cain was alive, he could tell the story and retorted, I don't know, am I my brother's keeper? Cain counted on the past being the past and dead bodies being silent. What Cain did not remember is that God has a way of knowing. God said to Cain, listen, your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. The passage from Hebrews also said that Cain still speaks by faith, even though he is dead. The blood of Abel cried out to God. Abel's cry was a song of sorrow. The ground was marred by blood and became the location of this song of sorrow. Creation recognized the injustice that sounded out from the marred soil. Clearly, Cain did not want to hear this song of sorrow or take responsibility for the direct role he played in its creation. God did not stand for his actions or ignorance, though. In fact, God says, listen to Cain. 
Cain is directed to listen to God and the song of sorrow rising from his brother's body in the ground. God directed him to listen to what God can hear from what remains of Abel. Listening here is a way of remembering. God does not allow Cain to ignore the travesty he committed against his brother to go unaccounted for through verbal dexterity. A person is dead. Cain's brother is dead. The world will never be the same. God does not allow the song of sorrow to go unheard. If we were to venture out to listen for voices in the soil, what would we hear? What are the songs of sorrow crying out to God for justice? Can you hear the blood and sweat of a black runner from Georgia, the tears of abused women, the gasps of soldiers waking up from all too real dreams, and the coughs of the poor who die without adequate health care? Can you hear this coming from polluted ground? If you cannot hear these songs, it does not mean they do not exist. They are there and God says, listen. If you cannot hear them, then it is time to ask why. What is separating you from the laments of the suffering? Perhaps we do not hear the songs because we do not want to. We do not want to admit culpability or witness any more pain and suffering. It is always hard to hear them when listening feels like swimming upstream. It is hard to hear when the mainstream pulls us away. There are songs and memories that mainstream society is trying so desperately to drown out, and it is beyond time to ask why. It is time to listen and remember the truth told from the ground and not those standing over the bodies. Bodies will continue to fall and cry until we listen. In the dystopian world of the giver, the society was able to select what memories would shape the community. The council controlled the stories told and events remembered. Rather than remember all the hurt and destruction that humanity inflicted, the society designated one person to be the keeper of memories. The keeper of memories remembered the good and the bad. In this way, the past could be the past as people went through life ignorant of much of what came before. But trying to leave the past in the past brought about serious consequences. The society bent or perhaps even broke the truth in the way it understood its past and present. The community rested on unstable ground as the songs of sorrow were drowned out. Without the ability to remember, the community could not listen. Memories are not purely passive traces of events. They are poignantly active markers of life. Memories have meaning, and when they are taken away or denied, life is impacted. The fabric of the world is altered when memories are snuffed out. The protagonist of the giver, Jonas, as the new keeper of memories, was faced with a difficult choice. Should he perpetuate the communal myths by keeping all of the society's memories to himself, 
or should he expose the duplicitous ground the community uneasily rests upon? You can read the book to see what Jonas did, but remember that part of the power of good dystopian literature is its capacity to capture pertinent aspects of life. In other words, if you read the book, you might just have to ask yourself the same question. Can you accept the communal myths and the duplicitous ground that society rests upon when it tries to forget its pasts? You can learn a lot about a society by looking at what they choose to remember. Alternatively, you can uncover much by pondering what would rather be forgotten. The Giver illustrates that there are dire repercussions when societies and communities refuse to remember certain things. Selective memory may make those in control of the narrative feel better, but the truth cannot be hidden. The truth cannot be dismissed so casually. Memories and lingering effects have a way of surfacing and demand to be heard. The voices of the past cry out. Beyond hearing the songs of sorrow that stem from injustices, the temptation to forget, ignore, and perpetuate in the present is fueled by radical individualism. This individualism says it was not my hand that struck the brother or sister, therefore I do not have to listen. I do not live in Georgia. I do not own a gun. I smile at people who do not look like me when I walk past them. I donate money to organizations that make a difference. If I do all of this, God, surely I am not responsible for the bodies in the ground. I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Individualism focuses on the self that is standing and refuses to see or hear the body on the ground. Individualism tries to forget that we are part of a communal society, whether we like it or not. It teaches us that we are isolated islands moving through a world that exists for us. This excuses the suffering of others as inevitable or caused by moral deficiencies. The me mindset focuses on the self while viewing other people as minor characters in our story. This could not be further from the truth, though. We exist in an interconnected, interdependent world. We live in a shared world where the Holy Spirit fills the space that is between us. Our lives and identities are forever changed when we come into contact with each other. For good or for ill, we impact those around us. Continental philosopher Paul Ricoeur said it this way, in our experience, the life history of each of us is caught up in the histories of others. Whole sections of my life are part of the life history of others, of my parents, my friends, my companions in work and in leisure. To answer the ancient question from Genesis, yes, yes, you are your brother's keeper and you are your sister's keeper your friend's keeper, your annoying person in the office keeper. Yes, you are even your enemy's keeper. There is no one for whom you are not a keeper. That doesn't mean you must continue to engage with people who have hurt and abused you. It doesn't mean that you cannot walk away from people who do not keep you, but you are a keeper. For today, this places the obligation to listen to songs of sorrow and remember. 
To be a keeper for others recognizes that we share life, the world, and God with one another. I doubt that the author of The Giver had Genesis in mind when she wrote about the keeper of memories. But maybe being a keeper also means holding on to each other's stories with trust and care. Maybe it means listening deeply to those around us and honoring the ways in which we are connected, even when these connections are not visible. In The Giver, the keeper of memories is tasked with remembering on behalf of the community for the good of all. But we do not live in a world where just one person is the keeper of memories. We all are. And because we are all keepers, we are partners in the hard work of remembering. Ricor says that we are entangled with one another. And this entanglement should result in mutual care and concern for each other. Your life is directly shaped by the people surrounding you. You impact the people around you. This entanglement challenges notions of radical individualism because of the way life is inherently connected. On the one hand, this means the present is shaped by mutuality. On the other hand, it means that the past and memory do not belong to any particular individual or even a particular community. This is not to say that we are bound by the past or memories in a fatalistic manner. However, they are always present even when we are not aware. History is shared, and there is an ethical responsibility, responsibility to the past when forgetting and remembering. How we remember and what we remember must be measured because of the way in which they shape the present and the future. If you travel around any city, you will see statues, plaques, and monuments. These represent events, people, or times that are memorialized. There are times we observe special days in the year. These are formative reminders of what has been. Tomorrow is Memorial Day. On this day, we remember those who gave their lives in military service on behalf of the country. Tomorrow, we remember that war is not free and that the costs of war extend far beyond what the U.S. Treasury Department can print. Memorial Day is a day of remembering. But it is also a challenging day. How do we honor the good and remember the injustices? How do we live in the tensions and ambiguities of life that are always more complex than a simple good-bad dichotomy, right or wrong? How do we remember more fully and truthfully? We must remember that we live in a shared world. This means that until there is freedom for all, there can never be freedom for some. Freedom cannot be achieved for a few on the backs of the many. While songs of sorrow are the dirge of the land, the land is not a place of freedom. Recognizing this means reclaiming and remembering aspects of the past. It necessitates being keepers for one another. 
We are keepers of the voices of the past. We are keepers of voices in the present. Yet there is another important way that we are keepers. We are keepers of each other's futures. We not only live in a shared world, but we must move toward a shared future. The future is not mine. It is not yours. It is ours. God invites us to work as keepers toward a shared future for everyone. This invitation is hard, but it is also good news for everyone. It is good news that the shared future is not wishful thinking. It is God's promise that we are invited into. We come now to a time of prayer in the service. I invite you to assume a posture of prayer that best allows you to support the prayers of the community. Remain seated. Stand, kneel, or come to the altar rail as the choir leads us in the call to prayer. Lead me, Lord. Today's prayer is adapted from the writings of the Right Reverend Gerilyn Wolfe, Episcopal Bishop. Let us pray. Gracious God, who knit our inmost parts before we were born, and who shelters us with a strong hand, in gratitude receive the prayers we offer as we respond to each petition by saying, Kyrie eleison. In thanksgiving for the unity we share through our death and resurrection in Jesus Christ, that we who have been entrusted with the gift of new life may bring life to the world and renewed hope to our church. For this we pray. Kyrie eleison. For the courage to hold fast to the high ideals of our calling, bringing the lamp of charity to those who live in despair and desperation, and through through their cries, receive the saving grace that enlightens our ministry. For this we pray. Kyrie eleison. For a renewed sense of the body of Christ, the church, that together with our bishops, church leaders, and all ministers, we may rededicate ourselves in the unity of the triune God. For this we pray. Kyrie eleison. 
for the urgency to seek peace before the battle breaks and economic justice before the weight of poverty fractures the will of nations. For this we pray. Kyrie eleison. For the forgiveness of our sins, that the wounds that we inflict on one another in the name of righteousness may be healed by the divine life that overcomes human frailty. For this we pray. Kyrie eleison. For those whose lives are approaching death, and for those who have died, especially those we remember in our hearts now, that they and their loved ones may receive the comfort of the Holy Spirit. For this we pray. Kyrie eleison. We pray these things in the name of Christ, who baptized us with fire and water and called us to be a baptizing community. And now we are bold to pray in the words Jesus taught his early disciples. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.
grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Go in peace and serve the living God. Amen.